0: hey you have reached the big bang bible podcast and my name is john s pennington jr i'm your host and this is episode 109 and it's entitled who created satan but it's really about you know hey listen there are people out there who believe that god jesus christ and the holy ghost are all one person and i'm using the term person very liberally okay and there are people who believe that god jesus and the holy ghost are three separate entities, but they work together. Well, I'm on the latter part of that. And 95% of the Christians in the world believe that they're all the same person. But here's the question. If God is perfect, then who created Satan? If God claims that he's perfect, doesn't perfect beings mean that you create everything perfect? But we know Satan isn't perfect. So this kind of answers both of those questions together. And it really dives into, you know, where the origin of Satan came from. Here we go, hope you're gonna like it. Do you have difficulty bringing science and religion together? Do you need analytics and logical fact patterns to organize the scriptures? Do you have a science professor who's trying to drive a wedge between you and your belief in God? On this show, we are on a voyage to merge, unite, and consolidate the gospel with new discoveries in statistics, evolution, the Big Bang Theory, and the Bible. Join me and follow along to answer these questions with a drop of my Latter-day Saint perspective. Welcome to the Big Bang Bible Podcast with me as your host, John S. Pennington Jr. How can God claim to be perfect when God himself creates imperfect creations? How can a perfect God be the creator of Satan? How can God create imperfect humans? If God is perfect, then by definition, why does he not create perfect humans? If God created everything, then where did Satan come from? And why did God create Cain, who killed his own brother? How can God claim to be perfect if he creates non-perfect things, like Satan? The answer might be relative to your perspective. Now, please remember the word relative, and we will come back to it later in this chapter. Relativity meaning there might be multiple correct answers for the same event. All of these questions all consolidate down to one thesis statement or question that you must answer. That is, do you actually believe that God is the father of your spirit? Really? Let me be more specific. I do not mean is God the creator of your spirit, like a great chef is a creator of a delicious apple pie. I mean, when the Bible says that God is your father in heaven, The Father of your Spirit, do you believe that God is the same species as you are? Now, I am using the word species very loosely, but it's the closest word I have to explain this question. If you said yes that God is actually the Father of your Spirit, then you are going to like this chapter of my book. If you said that God is not actually the Father of your Spirit, that your Spirit, and I emphasize the word Spirit here, If you said that your spirit is not the same species as God, and the Bible is just speaking in a metaphorical way, and that God is only the creator of our spirits like a chef creates a great apple pie, if that is your view, that we are living on an earth and God just views us like humans view an anthill, meaning the ants look nothing like a human, but ants are just an amusement to a human observer. An anthill is just something interesting for the human to observe and to be entertained by. If that is your answer, then this chapter is not going to be your favorite of my book. The very definition of the word perfect is that if a person is perfect, then everything that person creates would be perfect. Then under that definition, where did Satan come from? Who created Satan? Because we know Satan is not perfect, then who created him and how can the God that created Satan claim to be perfect? To understand this, we must first clear up the issue regarding if Jesus and God are the same person. Now, I am using the word person with a very loose, liberal definition. Or are Jesus and the Father two entities but are one in purpose? Most Christian religions believe that God and Christ are the same person or the same individual. Mormons are one religion that do not believe that God and Christ are the same person or individual. Mormons believe that God and Christ are both perfect and therefore one in purpose. Two separate entities, but both perfect, one in purpose. Now to clarify this, we need to start with the writings of the Apostle John. Because John is such a great writer, he always clarifies himself when he writes. He clears up all ambiguous statements. Here's a few examples. John chapter 3, verse 22, and it says, and I quote, After these things came Jesus and his disciples into the land of Judea, and there he tarried with them and baptized, unquote. Now, this scripture says that Jesus baptized. The Bible says that Jesus baptized. But wait a minute. Turn the page of John and go down to John chapter 4, verse 2, and I quote, Though Jesus himself baptized not, but his disciples. Okay, what did the Apostle John just do? He clarified himself. He is writing on a parchment with ink, and he's not finished writing yet, but he goes back and reads what he just wrote. Then he realizes that John chapter 3, verse 22 could be misinterpreted. But rather than take some ink and blot out John chapter 3, verse 22, he just writes another verse to clarify the earlier statement. Because... John assumes that the reader will read the whole book and not stop at chapter 3, verse 22. Because if the reader stops at that verse and does not read the entire book, they will think that Jesus baptized many people. Now, from John's perspective, why would any normal person not read the entire work? From John's perspective, it's unimaginable that the reader would only read one verse and get a conclusion. Okay, let's read another. This is in John chapter one, verse 18. And it says, and I quote, No man hath seen God at any time, unquote. But then John again clarifies himself in John chapter six, verse 46. And I quote, Not that any man has seen the Father, save he which is of God, he hath seen the Father, unquote. Once again, rather than going back and blotting out chapter one, verse 18, with some ink, The Apostle John just clarifies himself and writes more words in chapter 6, verse 46. Because he assumes the reader will read the whole book, and John wants to make sure the reader understands the whole concept in full. That is why he writes more words and clarifies an earlier statement. This is a rational assumption, and this makes perfect sense. My point is, you must read the entire book in its totality to understand the answer. You have to read all the scriptures to get the answer. If you only read one verse, you will not understand what John is talking about in the book of John. My Protestant friends tell me that the Bible says that God and Christ are one. And they quote John chapter 10, verse 30, which says, I and my father are one. And they also quote John chapter 14, verse nine, that says, he that hath seen me hath seen the father, unquote. Now, these two verses imply that Jesus and the Father are the exact same person. But once again, the Apostle John clarifies what he said in chapter 10 and chapter 14. He clarifies himself in chapter 17. Now, this is Jesus praying to the Father for his apostles as he explains what it means when he said in chapter 10, I and my Father are one. Okay, this is John chapter 17, verses 20 through 22. Now, here we go. Jesus prays and says, and I quote, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, as thou Father art in me, and I in thee, that they may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me, and the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, unquote. All right, here you have two options that you must choose. Option number one, if Jesus and the Father are the exact same person, then that means that Jesus is praying for all of his apostles to somehow all mesh themselves and combine themselves into one person. Because Jesus said that they may be one even as we are one. And remember, Jesus is talking to the Father when he's praying for this. Or you could go with option number two, which is if Jesus and the Father are two separate entities, two perfect entities, but not the exact same person, but both perfected, then Jesus is praying to the Father in hope that all of his apostles will become one in purpose, just like Jesus and the Father are one in purpose. Now, when I explain this scripture in John chapter 17, verses 20 and 22 to my Protestant friends, they always say, yes, but the book of John chapter 10 says that Jesus and God are one. And my reply is, yes, the book of John does say that, but the book of John chapter 3 also says that Jesus baptized. But you see, the writer of the book of John assumed you would read the whole thing, not just one verse. John assumed you would give him time to clarify himself. When John chapter 10 says, I and my Father are one, then just a few more pages over in John chapter 17, Jesus prays to the Father that all the apostles may be one, just like Jesus and God are one. It all makes sense. And option number two is your only viable conclusion. This is one reason I had to leave the Protestant faith years ago. My reading of the Bible says that they are one in purpose, and the Trinity doctrine never really resonate in my soul. Now the Apostle John doesn't stop there. He continues to write and write and write and clarify that Jesus and God are two entities. Here's a few more scriptures. John six, thirty eight through thirty nine. For I came down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Here's another one. John three twenty two for the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Okay, listen to this next scripture. Listen very carefully. It says in John chapter 14, verse 28, it says, for my father is greater than I, unquote. Then there's another one. Then in the morning of the first resurrection, Jesus is talking to Mary and he says in John 20, verse 17, go to my brethren and say unto them, I ascend unto my father and your father, to my God and your God. As you can see, the Apostle John once again clarifies himself. Jesus and God are separate entities, but one in purpose. When I was first taught this by the Mormon missionaries, they told me that God and Jesus were two separate people. This was something that I already really believed, but I was in a church that taught that Jesus and God were the same person. I remember back then that the Mormon missionaries' doctrine was sweet music to my soul. Now, why did I have people teaching me about the Trinity concept? Here is one reason. I refer you to a couple of verses in the book of 1 John that were added to the Bible in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Then, in the early 1500s, after the invention of the printing press, William Tyndale printed one of the first English translations of the Bible and erroneously retained these two verses. Then King James Version in 1611 once again retained these two verses. The two verses are in First John chapter 5, verses 7 and 8, and it says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. And there are three that bear witness in earth, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood, and these three agree in one." Unquote. Those two verses are not in the oldest known text of 1 John. They were added to the Bible 300 to 400 years after the birth of Christ. Now, I need to make a point here that someone, some religious monk, thought that the Apostle John needed a little help. Someone thought that a man who walked with Jesus and was taught by Jesus needed a bit more clarification on the doctrine of the Trinity— a doctrine that was introduced in 325 A.D. by the Nicene Creed. Someone must have thought that they were just helping John out a little bit. Can you believe this? As if he required help. But as you can see, John was a very good writer, and when something was written in an ambiguous way, John always clarifies himself with multiple examples. So I'm not blaming anyone for believing the concept of the Trinity, because it is inferred in the King James Version of the Bible. Here are three quick reasons to accept the doctrine of separate, but one in purpose. Okay, number one, just read the entire book of John. That's it. (laughs) Okay, number two, the disciple Stephen had a vision that is written in Acts chapter 7, verses 55 and 56, where it says that Stephen, I quote, "...looked up steadfast into heaven," And saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God. Unquote. So Jesus was actually standing on God's right hand or was standing on the right side of God. Either way, you read this verse in the book of Acts, figuratively or literally, there are two beings in that vision, not one. This is an eyewitness account from Stephen. Okay, number three. The most compelling case is a recent eyewitness account. Joseph Smith met God and Jesus Christ when he was 14 years old. And he said that there were two beings because he said that one turned to the other and said, this is my beloved son, hear him, unquote. We have the apostle John's written account. We have the disciple Stephen's eyewitness account and Joseph Smith's eyewitness account all testifying that there are two separate beings. Both are perfect and therefore are perfect in purpose. Now, when my friends tell me that they don't believe Joseph Smith, I understand this because they're not Mormon. That makes perfect sense to me. But what I don't understand is why they don't believe the eyewitness account of Stephen. And what I don't understand is why they don't believe the apostle John in the Bible. John is so clear on this subject. So why don't they believe the Apostle John? I don't know. In the end, my friends never have given me a satisfactory answer to that question. All right. Therefore, Joseph Smith, the disciple Stephen, and the Apostle John have established that God and Jesus are two separate individuals. This concept is essential to answering the question, Is your spirit the same species as God the Father? Is God the actual father of your spirit? Think about this. If he's not, then why is there Matthew chapter five forty-eight, which says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your father in heaven is perfect. Why would Jesus command us to do this if it was not possible? If a human is looking down at an anthill with millions of ants running around, the human would not say to the ants, become like me. Why wouldn't he say this? Because that's not possible. An ant cannot become a human being. But Jesus Christ tells us to be therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. If we are not the same species in spirit, then this commandment does not make any sense. In fact, it would be a lie, commanding us to do something that we could never accomplish. But Jesus is not lying. He's telling us that God is his Father, and God is your Father. And Jesus also tells you that you need to become perfect, just like your Father in heaven is perfect. If God is not truly my Father, then I could never hope to become perfect like he is. Just like an ant on an anthill could never become a human being, because humans are not the father of ants. They are a different species. Why are we commanded to become like God if we are not his actual spirit children? Matthew 5, 48 does not make any sense unless you believe God is the father of Jesus and God is the father of your spirit. Okay, here are a few more scriptures that'll help you out in this concept. Hebrews chapter 12, verse nine. It says, "'Furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh "'which corrected us, and we gave them reverence.' shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the father of spirits and live, unquote. Hebrews makes the distinction between the father of our flesh and the father of our spirits. Remember this because I'm going to use this distinction later on in this chapter. Okay, here's another one. Acts 17, 28, 29. Now listen to this. For in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring for as much then are we are the offspring of god we ought not to think of the godhead is like unto gold or silver or stone graven by art and man's device unquote the writer of the book of acts uses the term offspring of god now why would the book of acts use the term offspring of god and Why does it also use the term Godhead? Well, for the same reason that Genesis says this. This is Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. And I quote, And God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Unquote. You see, the Bible tells us that we are his offspring and heirs to the throne. That is, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Let's go to Romans 8, 16 to 17. And I quote, The Spirit himself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together, unquote. Okay, Revelation 3.21, it says, and I quote, To him that overcometh will I grant to sit with me in my throne, even as I also overcame, and am set down with my Father in his throne, unquote. Therefore, Romans chapter 8 and Revelation chapter 3 has established that all of us can be joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Now, here is the question: How can we be joint heirs with Jesus Christ if we are not of his same lineage? Listen to the sequence of events in John chapter 10, verse 30 to 34. It starts in verse 30 and it says that Jesus says, I and my father are one. Then the Jews took up stones to stone him. Then the Jews say, they are going to stone him for blasphemy. And I quote, because thou being a man, makest thyself God, unquote. Then in the last verse, it says, Jesus answered them. And this is a quote. And listen to this. Is it not written in your law, I said, ye are gods, unquote. Ho, 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 Jesus uses their logic against them because Jesus is referring to Psalms chapter 82, verse 6, which says, and I quote, now listen to this. I have said, ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. Bam, no double bam. Jesus stops them right in their tracks. This scripture makes sense if you believe that you were actually a child of God. But if you don't believe, then Psalms 82, verse 6 does not make any sense to you. Once you grasp this concept, then answering who created Satan is obvious. Let me make a couple notes here. The term most high is referencing to the term most high God. The term most high God is written all through the scriptures. In Genesis chapter 14, Melchizedek is a priest to the Most High God, and Abraham was blessed by the Most High God. And in Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all servants of the Most High God. And in Acts chapter 16, the Apostle Paul said, the men were servants of the Most High God. And then, in Mark chapter 5, says a wild man named Legion ran up to Jesus and cried with a loud voice and said, what have I to do with thee, Jesus, thou Son of the Most High God? Unquote. My point is, why did the writers of the Bible require the term Most High God? Why do the writers of the Bible need to make that distinction? It's because there are scriptures like Revelation chapter 1 verse 6. Now listen to this very carefully. You got to listen. Revelation chapter 1 verse 6, and I quote, and hath made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, Also, there's another scripture in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. God the Father actually uses the term, O God, to describe Jesus. Then there's another scripture in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that says that Satan is the God of this world. That's why, therefore we have established the following. Number one, Jesus is the Son of God. Number two, we are all spirit children of the Most High God. Number three, we are joint heirs or can be joint heirs with Jesus Christ upon Jesus Christ's throne. And number four, Jesus himself and the book of Psalms says that we are gods and children of the Most High. Okay. Therefore, Is it not logical to believe that Satan and the fallen angels from heaven are also creations of God? They are also his spirit children. Therefore, when Mormons refer to Jesus Christ as their older brother, they are doing so because of biblical-based scriptures that spell out who the spirit children of God are. From the Mormon perspective, all humans are brothers with Jesus Christ. Also, all humans are brothers with Satan from a certain perspective. In the same context that all humans are brothers with Adolf Hitler. However, Jesus is very different from all of us. Jesus is the only person who ever lived on this earth and never committed a sin in his entire life. Jesus Christ is the perfect one. But we have been commanded in Matthew five forty-eight to be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. So how does God claim to be perfect when God is the one who created Satan? This is a very deep question, but somewhat a simple answer. God creates and is the father of perfect spirit children that have the potential to become like their father. They do not have the right to become like their father or their elder brother, Jesus Christ. They are not entitled to become like him. They just have the perfect ability to become like him. God never caused Satan to rebel against him. Satan chose that upon himself, all by himself. Now listen, if you do not accept the theory that you are the same species as God, then you must accept the only logical alternative. That sometime way, way back in the past, before the earth was created, before God separated the light from the darkness, before he created the heavens and the earth, back when there was nothing, God was sitting around as an omnipotent being and he must have been bored out of his heavenly mind because he created us. If we're not his children in spirit, then he just decided to create an earth and put human beings on that earth that are nothing like himself. Because I guess he wanted to have an earth where people like us can walk around and function like an anthill to him and worship him. Maybe he was bored. Also, You have to accept that an omnipotent being is creating worlds of humans that can never be like himself. You also have to accept that a perfect being is commanding humans to become perfect like himself, fully knowing they can never achieve this commandment. Also, you have to accept that God was just lonely and needed something or someone to worship him way back in the beginning. And you have to accept. Instead of God deciding to create someone like himself, he decided not to create beings that had the potential to become like him. No, he decided to create an anthill called Earth and command the humans to become something that he knows they can never achieve. And you have to accept that the Bible, when it says that you are the offspring of God, is just talking in a metaphoric way that the Bible is just using words like offspring incorrectly and just wants us to believe that we can become like God, which is a lie. That's what you have to accept. Now, before I finish, I want to clear up and make sure no one misinterprets what I'm saying here. I need to clarify just like the Apostle John. Okay, here is the distinction. You got to listen close. The body that was created for Adam came from the dust of the ground of this earth. In the book of Genesis, Adam's body came from the dust of the ground. God created an earth, and once the earth was created, God took the material list in the book of Genesis and made a body for Adam's spirit. The material list in Genesis are the ground, the dust of the ground, and mist over the ground, or H2O, commonly known as water. Adam's spirit was not created in the Garden of Eden. Adam's spirit existed long before the Garden of Eden, long before Adam's body was created. So therefore, humans are made up of two things, a body and a spirit. The spirit part being the offspring of God and the body part being a creation of God. Because Genesis says the plants came from the ground. And the beasts came from the ground, and the fowl came from the ground, and the fishes came from the ground, and the man or the body of the man came from the dust of the ground. Okay, here is Genesis chapter 2, verse 6, and it says, and I quote, But there went up a mist from the earth, and watered the whole face of the ground, unquote. You see, once God put a mist over the ground, meaning water, or H2O, Then God mixes those materials to make Adam's body. That's a creation. Okay, here's the scriptural issue that I have I am unable to find a scripture that says that God is the father of Adam's body. I can't find it. I've been unable to find it. But I can find multiple scriptures that say that my spirit is the offspring of God, that God is the father of my spirit and that we are all gods and children of the Most High and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. I can find those scriptures. That is the distinction and the clarification I need to make. God is the creator of Adam's body with mist, water, dust of the ground. But God is the father of Adam's spirit. There is a difference. And I'm not using the words creator and father as synonyms. I am making a distinction between the two words, just as I believe the Bible has instructed me to do. The creation of a physical body and the fathering of spirits are two different things. This is why Mormons only pray to the same being that Jesus Christ taught us to pray to. When Jesus Christ was in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, verses 39 to 44, Jesus asked the Father three separate times for the cup to pass from him, that he would not be required to do this suffering. And three separate times, Jesus is denied his personal prayer. He is denied his personal wish. The divine being he was praying to basically said no to Jesus three separate times. Whoever that was or is, whatever you want to call him, whatever name that he might go by from your perspective, whomever was listening to Jesus' prayer, that is who Mormons pray to. The reason is because that is who Jesus Christ prayed to. Now note here, even though Jesus was denied three times, he still agrees to do the will of the Father. Why? Because Jesus and God are one, one in purpose. Okay, let's switch gears here. Lucifer chose to be a Satan. It was not an assignment or a calling. Now, if you need more on this subject, then please listen to chapter 12 of Mr. Mormon entitled, Was Adam Set Up to Fail? That'll answer a lot of your questions on that subject. Lucifer is just one of God's angels that thought he could be equal to God. Now, get this. Lucifer thought that he had a better plan than God. But you must give him a little bit of credit. As Lucifer, he was able to convince a third part of heaven to follow him. Think about this. God, being perfect, had a third part of heaven fall. This is a very perplexing part of the story. How did a perfect being lack the ability to convince so many? That Lucifer was a liar and short-sighted and ill-versed on what it takes to become perfect. This begs the question, how does a perfect being create unperfect things? Okay, here is some information that will help you on this question. The word perfect in the book of Matthew is translated more precisely to be the word complete. Therefore, the translation could be, Be therefore complete, even as your Father in heaven which is complete. If you are truly complete, then you are truly perfect because you have nothing that is missing. And if you have nothing that is missing, then you are by definition perfect or fulfilling your potential. Perfect in this context does not mean that you can do anything. It just means that you have fully completed or fulfilled your full potential. That you are complete. You have nothing missing. Our Father in Heaven has provided an opportunity for each one of us to become complete as He is complete. Lucifer thought that he had a shortcut to becoming complete. Lucifer thought he had a substitute for actual experience. What I want to say to Lucifer is this: the reason you keep going in circles is because you keep cutting corners. Ha <laughs> ha. There is no shortcut. There is no substitute for experience. Some children plant wheat in the spring and expect orange trees to grow in the fall, even though their parents tell them this course of action will not get them orange trees. But some children must experience things for themselves before knowledge will penetrate their skulls. And a father in heaven has to sit back and painfully watch his children fail so that they can learn. Some children cannot learn any other way. Experience has no substitute. Now, my Protestant friends tell me that if I claim to be the same species in spirit as God, then that I am committing blasphemy. I have two answers to that accusation. Number one, Jesus said in John chapter 10 that the scriptures say that we are God's And Psalms 82 confirms that we are gods and children of the Most High, okay? Now, number two, I reminded them of the theory of relativity taught by Joseph Smith in 1843 in Doctrine and Covenants, section 130, verse 4, where it says that time is relative to the planet where you reside. Joseph Smith taught this concept about three-quarters of a century before Albert Einstein figured out the mathematical equation and became a Nobel Prize winner. Joseph Smith taught in verse 4 of D&C 130 that the reckoning of God's time, angel's time, prophet's time, and man's time is according to the planet on which they reside. Joseph Smith taught the theory of relativity long before Albert Einstein even was born. Okay, here is a quick example or metaphor of the theory of relativity. Okay, you are standing on the side of a train track and there's a flatbed train car coming down the track, traveling about 30 miles per hour. And I am standing on the flatbed train car and I'm holding a golf ball about the height of my nose. And as the train car comes by where you are standing, I drop the golf ball, and it bounces right where your feet are. Then it bounces up, and I don't catch it. I allow the golf ball to bounce once again, and then I catch it. From my perspective, the golf ball bounced straight up and straight down. But from your perspective, the golf ball bounced once at your feet, then bounced a second time about 30 feet down the direction of the train track. Okay, so here comes the confusion. You and I are standing in front of a judge in a courtroom of law, and you testified the ball bounced 30 feet, and I testified the ball bounced straight up and straight down. Who is the judge supposed to believe? Did the ball bounce 30 feet, or did it bounce straight up and straight down? Who is telling the truth? The answer is that two people can see the exact same event and have two totally different conclusions And both conclusions can be correct. That is relativity. And Albert Einstein taught that time is the same way. He said two people traveling at two different speeds will have two different experiences. Example, one person traveling at the speed of light would age two years, and the other person not traveling at the speed of light on Earth would age 30 years. The person on the earth watching the person traveling at the speed of light would appear to be moving very, very slowly. Both would be correct from their speed or from their point of view. That is the theory of relativity. It's a difficult concept to grasp, but basically two people can see the exact same thing, have two different conclusions, and both be correct. So my answer To the blasphemy question is, Joseph Smith taught and Albert Einstein proved that two people can witness the exact same event and have two totally different conclusions and both can be correct. I read the scriptures and they tell me I'm a child of God. My Protestant friends read the scriptures and it tells them that they can never comply with Jesus' commandment to be ye therefore perfect even as your Father in heaven is perfect. My friends have a commandment in the Bible That they cannot comply with because they do not believe that God is actually their father. So who created Satan? From a certain perspective, Satan created himself. Lucifer made himself into a Satan. And from a certain perspective, you have created yourself. Satan chose to be bad and therefore created an evil self-creation. In contrast, you have chosen to follow Jesus Christ. If you continue to follow Christ and never quit, even when you make a mistake, you will one day become complete. Never quitting is the faith in Jesus that saves you to go to heaven. You need just to believe that you will never give up on trying to follow Jesus. And from that perspective, you have created yourself and can create a perfect complete self with the help of Jesus Christ. I say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.